Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Catherine Opie. Opie's most recent bodies of work are included in Catherine Opie Portraits and Landscapes, on view at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio, through August 2nd. The exhibition was curated by Bill Horrigan. Opie is one of America's best-known photographers. Her work is frequently focused on the theme of community, an investigation she continues in the portraits at the Wexner. In 2008, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum presented a major retrospective of her work. Among the many American museums that have presented solo shows of Opie's work are the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston, the Portland Art Museum, the Walker Art Center, the MCA Chicago, and the St. Louis Art Museum. She also sits on the Board of Trustees of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Catherine Opie for the full hour, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Habsburgs for more. Blaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And we're back. Kathy Opie, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. So the show at the Wexner features mostly portraits, plus a few other things. We'll get to the other things in a moment. Portraits have been at the heart of your work since the late 80s or early 90s. And one of the primary ways in which you address kind of a broader idea of social justice or equality in your work is through simple inclusion. These are people I know. These are my friends. Here they are. Was there a point in, in your life or in your life as an artist in school, after school, when you realized that an important way to insist on the equality of personhood was to represent it, to index it, and to represent it over a long period of time? No, I think, I think there's definitely a place in which the idea of documenting and creating representations, especially within my community at a time when I was really seriously thinking about making the portraits of of my friends was out of a great huge sense of loss in terms of the way that AIDS decimated my community. So for me, it was literally a record, an ability to make a record of my family, almost like a family album, but also to try to create a larger discourse in terms of portraiture and A lot of it in terms of going into the studio for me and not photographing people in their homes was to bring a conversation about portraiture that went beyond documentary photography. So the the idea of portraiture and documentary photography is always the person in their home or in their place. And so by using the bright colored seamless, it was the architecture about being the body the person embodying themselves and, you know, using a kind of colorist field to to begin to work with that, that dated back to a history of portrait painting. 
so you've been making these portraits for almost 30 years now. So you mentioned at the beginning of the process that AIDS was and, and, and the impact of AIDS was a motivator. Was there something, you know, when AIDS began to become less of a, a death sentence, was there another, did you reconceptualize the project? Did you think about, are there other reasons now, 15, 20 years on, why portraits remain important to me? I think that, you know, there's a, it's a lot of different things. It's, it's my love of humanity and people. It is that photography still is the best kind of recorder of history. I mean, I look at that portrait of John Baldessari and it just breaks my heart because I have known John since I was 24 years old and I'm now 54. And watching John be himself and how he has been in the art world and just also as a, as a professor and teaching with him at UCLA before he retired, you know, it, it, it is, it's like the, the newer portraits have very much the same basis as the earlier work, even though I'm trying to create more of an allegory within the body of work. It's not necessarily so grounded in the notion of a portrait as a document, but it is about holding people and, and having that moment in which you are recognizing a friend, a person, a colleague that's part of your community and to still create records of that. And I find it a lot of validity in that in terms of the way that photography still is able to create that you know, specificity of time in that moment. You mentioned how long you've known Bal John Baldessari, although I don't know if you've shot him before now. But one of the things that's interesting about this group of portraits that are at the Wexner Center is that they feature both people we've seen in your pictures for many, many years. Tattoo artist Idexa, performance artist Ron Athey, for example, and, and new subjects such as the distance swimmer Diana Nyad um, and Edie Windsor, who, um, of course, became famous as the lead plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that has expanded marriage equality and, as we'll soon find out, maybe opened the door to a lot more. So, so two questions about that. First, when you make portraits of, of, of people, is there a difference for you in making portraits of somebody you've made portraits of for many years as opposed to somebody you are shooting for the first time? You know, there's not really that much difference in terms of when people come into the studio, whether I know them really well or I've just met them for the first time. Like Edie, I don't know well. We've hung out. I definitely like to make portraits of people that I don't know as well, and I think that I became much more comfortable with that in terms of working for the New York Times Magazine and being sent out for editorial. And I think that one of the ways that my being asked to do commercial photography has informed my work as it's opened up the possibility of what I can do with portraiture. And I don't know that I would set forth these different situations for myself with, without uh, learning more about kind of the editorial side. And I think that, that that has definitely opened up possibilities of my practice even though my own work really doesn't look like editorial portraiture, even the football players that one could go to and thinking about almost as an editorial moment, they don't look like that at all. And that's important to me because it still goes back to this kind of basis of painting. But I think that with people like Ron and Idexa and folks that I've photographed for a long time, it's almost harder to create a new portrait of them, that they have played such an important role as people that I've looked at and I've loved to look at for so long that in a certain way you think like, well, what else can I do here with them that, that will continue to 
to inform the work and inform myself in terms of having them sit for me. So I, it's almost harder to use friends over and over. But there are also friends that I can't stop looking at. And that's what I love about portraiture, too, is the, the permission to stare. So when you look at, at pictures of new people and pictures of, of old friends on the wall or in your studio when you're deciding you know, which of five pictures to use, so to speak, do you see a difference? You know, it, it, it comes down to where I'm really looking at form so often. Every once in a while, I think a portrait might capture their personality. But I really, I think that in some ways there is a, there is a component of self-portraiture in every portrait photographer in, in taking pictures of other people that they're looking for something that's internal within their own mind. So really for me, when I'm laying out a body of work, it's really about the form. And if you walk through the exhibition at the Wexner or any one of my installations, you know, really be aware of where I'm sending the gaze. It's like Oliver will be, you know, it's like everybody's looking either past you. Sometimes they're looking at you in this body of work. This body of work is probably the least amount of people staring back. And that's because I wanted them to inhabit this other space in in my mind. But they're it's really about form in the end for me to a certain extent, as much as it is about the person, but it has to work on this formal level. And often I'm not thinking about that portrait of, oh, does that best represent that person? It's more, does this add to this longer conversation or the way that we try to as artists to get people to really think about portraiture and look at them and be held by them? So even in the pictures that are kind of portraiture busts, the John, John Baldessari or, or Matthew Barney, eyes are less important, expression is less important, and body carriage and form of the body taking up space is still more important. I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying in the context of the full body pictures, say the picture of Idexa. But so even in kind of the half length or third length or whatever, same thing. No, very much so. I mean, w the way that those work is where I focus the light. So you'll notice with John, the light is very different than with Raymond. You know, and so for me, the form, even with the kind of bust portrait, as you're calling it, it's the light begins to inform where we're looking and how the figure emerges out of these black backgrounds. So and, and I'm directing them. I'm asking them to look where they're looking and kind of moving them subtly in the studio as I'm making the, you know, making the portraits, which take about, you know, 40 minutes to make or so. I don't really create a lot of uh, painful process uh, with people who come and sit for me. It's very quick, actually. Well, so let's talk about form in, in particular, the Diana Nyad portrait, which is, which is pretty great. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, but could you start by describing that picture and then maybe detailing how that became the form and presentation you wanted to show? The portraits of Diana actually started before I was even thinking about making a new portrait series. And it's because she's one of my best friends. And all of a sudden she came to our house and she told us this crazy thing that before her 60th birthday, that secretly she had been training and that she was going to try to attempt the swim again from Cuba to Florida. And so Julie and I kind of sat in the kitchen. We were like, okay. <laughs> 
really? And then we, you know, and I was like, okay, well, if you're training for it, then, then that's what you want to do. Then I, we fully support you and go for it. And Julie was more worried. And so every, I kept trying to go to Florida and be on the boat and be part of her t uh, team on the swim because my other best friend was her trainer, Bonnie Stoll. And it was really important for me to kind of be a part of it, but it never worked out. I was either in New Zealand or somewhere else. And so my contribution to the swim came as soon as Diana would come home after an attempt, I would ask her to come to the studio and I would make a portrait of her. So all the years that she attempted to do the swim, including the final fourth year in which she actually succeeded beyond, I, we, were, we were all shocked. <laughs> we were very worried that maybe like her goal, I kept saying to her like, well, you did win, Diana. It, you know, and she's like, no, winning is getting to the other shore. And I'm like, well, no, it's a process, Diana. <laughs> It's really like, it's amazing what you've done. And I never really realized what success means for an athlete is a very different thing what success means for an artist. I think that artists are often really interested in their failures and athletes are not so interested in failures. And it was a really, because I kept thinking of it as performance art. I mean, she's a professional athlete, but I kept thinking about Ron Athey, Chris Burden, all these, you know, different people with their bodies. Uh, and so the, the when I did the portrait of her on the black background, it was because the first image I did of her, which was on a brown background after the first year of the swim, it was the marks of her suit. And it was just incredible to me that it also had this really interesting reference to sun and photography. It's like a photogram, you know? I mean, you're laying it, that suit in which she's trained where we're looking at eight hours a day, she'd be in the pool at the Rose Bowl. And, you know, it became her other skin. And so when I did the back of her, it was really like, I love how you can see the movement of the straps, almost like if you're t making a photogram and you're moving, you know, something on the surface of the print. And having her look off and her back is just, she's a really powerful woman who is at that point was, I think, just before her 63rd birthday. And, you know, we don't really, the exposure of women in their bodies as we're aging is a really different thing, especially in this society in which, you know, everybody really doesn't want to sag or look differently. And what I love about the back is that it tells this whole complete story of not only the kind of depth of training because of the imprint of the suit on her body, but it's like her looking off into the black, which creates almost looking off into the horizon, which the horizon's always been really important to me. And it, it's a place of meditation that we get to look at her and think about her and think about the body, but also meditate on what she has kind of brought forth to us as perseverance and, and, a, and a huge dream. So a couple times now you've mentioned that these new portraits place figures against a black ground, which is a departure for your previous portraits had people set against often a bright color, you know, in their home, in their swimming pool, or maybe most famously in, in the work from the early 90s, a brightly colored ground a la Cranach or Holbein or something. Why did you decide for a black 
background in these? How did you achieve it and why does that matter? Or why did that matter? It mattered in the way that I wanted to play with the light. That in any kind of color, you would notice the color first. And so this was a way for me to foreground the figure in a way that I was able to use this kind of history of the way one thinks about light from, you know, Caravaggio to Da Vinci to a history of painting. And so all of a sudden I became in, in love with this, you know, Fresnel spot, that focus that I could put on my strobes. And I really think it's interesting how you follow the light throughout uh, the portraits and you wouldn't you wouldn't do that if it wasn't a black background and I also wanted their they're more internal of a body of work if that makes sense like I think of my other portraits as about representation a little bit external and really about defining my community and making us present I don't know I think the people are definitely present within these portraits but it has more to do with them coming out of my own mind which just swirls in blackness for the most part. And I really, the form that I was able to play with in terms of making the images with the way that I was working with the light and how the figure emerges out of the darkness, for me allows a bit of a sublime moment of being held. And the biggest question within this body of work for me is what the fuck is photography doing at this point? You know, I'm fairly disillusioned by it and I love it. It's been my medium and it's, I've, I've been doing it since I was nine years old. It's the only thing I've ever loved in my entire life more than my family. And I think that at a certain point I've taught for so many years that I've been begin to question, well, how, how am I going to become even interested in being held by these photographs when I go to various exhibitions and what does it mean for me to sink into something and, and want to want to engage and stare at it for a long time. So I'm using kind of an old formalist approach to try to get people to pause, to slow down. And that's what I'm hoping for to a certain extent by creating this, this formula, so to speak. One of the parts of the body of work that, that really slows people down are the blurred landscapes, and we'll get to those in a moment. But one more question about the, about the black... So to me, there is uh, one picture in the series, in the show, that is kind of very much about you physically engaging with that inky blackness and kind of testing it and seeing how it holds up and playing with it. And, <laughs> and I wonder if you think so, too, and, and then if, if, if you do, if, we, if, if we're thinking of the same picture. The picture that I think that you're thinking of is me putting my arm into the, which is basically my kind of like, I call it in my head, it's not titled this, but it's fisting the void. It's like sinking my body into something that is going to suck me in. And the way that I lit the fabric was so that you could, you know, if you know my, it's not a self-portrait, but in a certain way it is a self-portrait. But that whole five photographs is all a dream scenario. It's all about me grappling with my life at this point. It's about my body being a 54-year-old woman. At that point I made it, I was 52. It's about menopause. It's a, it's about desire. It's, it's, you know, after being, you know, pretty publicly making work about my body for a long time and very publicly a queer out butch dyke. Like this is this is my well, am I being sucked into this kind of black hole vortex myself because 
you know, I'm a, I'm now an aging woman that isn't trotting around like I did in my twenties, <laughs> so to speak, you know, it's, it's, a, it's about desire. And a lot of this body of work is about desire and still having it and wanting to know how you kind of deal with desire as you get older and your body begins to change. And that's why there's, it's so important how the age begins to vacillate between the bodies of work. So you have my son Oliver with Mrs. Nibbles, or you have Piper, this young girl off looking at the five photographs from this dream state, which is these ceram these pathetic ceramic stumps that I make that everybody laughs at. But I've decided that you're not allowed to laugh at them because now I'm photographing them. So fuck you all. <laughs> but, you know, people make fun of me for my ceramic stumps. They really do. And I'm kind of offended by it because my ceramic stumps are actually kind of important to me. They're another way for me to escape these other questions I have about what it means to make art. And so it's you know, and they're also like, I mean, they're a stump. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can talk about from a from a Freudian point of view of what a stump means. But it, it, it begins to be a little bit of a representation of menopause for me as well. And it's uh, and then they're on fire and there's a bonsai tree that I keep trying to rescue and it keeps dying. And so there's there's a lot of stuff about love, death, desire, wanting that all tries to mix in with this body of work, I suppose. So did that four or five picture sequence, and we'll have images of them in, in, in the order in which they're installed in the show, although the one with the stumps and the fire is kind of the hot flash that opens the show. So did that, the, that group of four or five or six or whatever it is, pictures come at the beginning of this series, in the middle or the end, and does that matter? It happened all at the same time. So it's like I started the portraits, then I had been making these kind of blurry landscapes and I knew I wanted to kind of include them with the portraits. And then I started to think about, well, how can I expand the work from a symbolic kind of place? Because I do feel that the that the portraits have more allegory and there's a little bit more symbolism in it. You have Kate and Laura stitching a blood drip. There's red all throughout the body of work. So when I started making th that sequence, it was really about creating more of a moment to realize that the symbolic is inherently very important within the body of work. Why is there red throughout the body of work? I love blood. I've always loved blood. People are scared of blood. I've never been that scared of blood. I've allowed myself to bleed and be cut for my own work. And all of a sudden, when you don't bleed anymore, it's a really strange thing. Not that I miss it completely, because that was always a not a very interesting part of being a woman. But it was the part of being a woman that allowed me to have a child, that allowed me to be aware of my body in a very different way. It, it's about cycles. It's about life. And when it goes away, you're kind of surprised. And it went away and it became important that red became symbolic within the body of work as that disappeared from a substance within my body. My guest is Catherine Opie. We'll be right back after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. 
important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn design galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. And now back to my conversation with Catherine Opie. So the other part of this body of, of, of work, as we mentioned a moment ago, is a series of landscapes that are blurred. Some of them are recognizable as places with which we're all familiar. Some of them are not. Some of them, one of them in particular looks like, you know, sergeant painting, you know, a sergeant Venetian interior in which you just see the, a single streak of paint on, on the ground as being the only light that's represented in the painting. So you've shot a lot of landscapes, master plan when you were a student at CalArts, the ice houses, football fields, Great Lakes, cities like Chicago and New York and, and L.A., of course. But here you're doing something different with landscapes by, by, by blurring them in. I mean, they're all blurred, but they're blurred to different degrees, as I mentioned a moment ago. The obvious place to start is why suddenly, after all these years, are you blurring landscapes? Yeah, fair, fair enough question, an important question, and it's... It's again about that question I have about photography right now. I did a class in the fall uh, titled uh, Selfie slash Self-Portraiture Hashtag What the Fuck. And I look, I, I have a house at the foot of the Sequoia National Forest. And nature has always been really important to me. I've never known how to make nature photographs. I never... I, I felt that, you know, in a way I could describe cities and I could d describe spaces and I could try describe football fields at, as sites of landscapes and kind of play with that genre of landscape. But I never kind of figured out a way of how do you represent, you know, in the way that Ansel Adams or Watkins or kind of a history of landscape photography, is how do we get moved at this point by this? That is so indexically part of our notion of place. And photography has always created, you know, the signifier of, 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 of absolute detail that then begins to represent place. How do we really unpack that? How do we begin to think about it? And you go to the Grand Canyon, you watch people get out, they take the cell phone picture, they post it on Facebook, they get back in their car, and they've experienced the Grand Canyon in their mind. Somebody even told me that story last night when we were at the opening. Oh, yeah, my dad went, took us to the Grand Canyon, got out of the car, and he took a picture of it, and we got in the car, and we left. And, you know, and I wanted, again, it's that question of being held or imagining or trying to also have a conversation with current abstract photography practices. Uh, mine is not a chemical-based analog practice. 
it is a lens based. It's still that photography operates from a lens. And so by simply just literally racking the focus of the lens, it's like removing my glasses. And I want people to spend more time with it because they can't recognize it. And then maybe it begins to be a memory or maybe it begins to be a dream. Maybe we're able to have a pause and kind of insist on the struggle of of looking and what looking does because I think photography is really complicated in terms of how it operates representationally. And so this is my way to kind of muck it up and have a conversation with that, those issues that I keep turning over in my mind. So for me, the use of the blur in contemporary art really comes out of Richter and the work he did in the mid-1960s, which kind of reaches its apex in, in Uncle Rudy. And in Richter's use of the blur, the blur is inextricable from memory, what we want to remember, what we don't want to remember, in questions of conscience. Was that part of the attraction of blurring for you? Did you think about that? Because some of the landscapes are recognizable and some aren't. And the ones, some of the ones that are, like Niagara, are landscapes that we as Americans have exploited in, you know, pretty intense ways commercially and with fire and with other things. So what was that kind of Richterian idea of the blur, an appeal? Well, this would be uh, an important kind of note now in the middle of this is that the two exhibitions before making this exhibition that I went and kind of saw that kind of made me really think about how to expand on ideas was the Da Vinci show at the National Portrait Gallery in London was up at the same time that the Richter show was at the Tate. I spent a lot of time in both of those exhibitions thinking about, you know, again, why did I want to stand in front of these paintings so much? And what did it mean for me to go to the Richter exhibition and begin to look at the abstractions in relationship to the portraiture? You know, it created this pause at the Tate that I had never seen Richter really do as a gesture before. I thought that show was so phenomenal. I made a photograph years ago called that in my mind, again, it's not the title of the piece, but in my mind, it's Ode to Richter. And it's uh, in the body of work 1999, in which all of a sudden the landscape and the foreground blurs, but you very clearly see a train going past these kind of Western uh, landscape hills, you know, and in so Richter has always been a really important person for me to think about. And I think most contemporary artists think about Richter, to be honest. I, I, I doubt that there's very many of us that kind of aren't influenced by the way that he has set forth a language of looking and materiality. It's hard to do materiality with photography. I try as much as I can. But to expand on the idea of Niagara being recognizable... Again, I think we need that moment where we go, oh, I know where it is, where other places in these national parks you can't recognize. And, you know, I'm, and one person was saying, well, where are those woods? And I'm like, well, where do you think you are? You know, and I mean, I the woods are the Sequoia National Forest, but the way that the trees work within the way that I'm kind of using the lens, they decrease them instead of expanding them. So, but it's... It's a way to simply trying to get people to slow down, really. And I don't know if photographs work anymore of these monuments that we know so well. We kind of just pass them by and we go, yeah, there's that place I know. 
You know, I mean, I think about the way that Gertzky tried to use landscape early on in the work, and I think it was so phenomenal because we were so caught up with the figure in relationship to landscape, which goes back to Bierstadt and other histories of painting. But I don't even know if those images at this point, those type of images begin to really work. And I have a lot of questions about that kind of stuff now. Was there one or two Richters that were important to you in, in getting to this work? Or was it just kind of the the show, the, uh, the whole body of work? I think the whole body of work. I mean, wandering through the museum. And I, you know, I spent a long time really thinking about the installation of that show. So the installation was incredibly important to how to activate work again in my mind. It's like, how do we activate work that we kind of know, but we get to look at it again in a new way? So because Niagara is the recognizable one, at least in this show, the series is still underway. The obvious question that I guess I have to ask is, there's a lot of art history of Niagara and lots of artists over the you know 160 years of Niagara paintings and photographs have thought about where did Church do his thing? Where did Innes do his thing? Do I go there? Don't I go there? Do I make the reference so clear that I go to the same place that the church did? You did not go to the same place church did. Did you think that through, or was that not a factor for you? So I've been uh, working on this piece of Yosemite Falls for the federal courthouse in downtown L.A., which is going to be a new building that's up next summer, and I'll install in. And I did look at a lot of reference materials of the images of Yosemite Falls before going and trying to make the piece. With Niagara, I didn't because I felt like you already innately knew it so well. I mean, and so the question for me was, how do you play with that history? Because I'm always interested. I mean, I've talked about this many interviews of what is iconic. And part of the, you know, the body of work of abstract landscapes is, again, in that way that I tried to recreate what is iconic and a new way of looking at it. And so I wanted some, I knew that I wanted something dreamy. You never know what the light's going to be like when you go someplace. I mean, you're on a plane and you're just like, okay, you don't know if you're going to have rainy or what you're going to get. But it just worked in a way that I felt that probably Niagara out of all of them dates back to a certain sense of 19th century landscape. And I really appreciate that because, again, that's this kind of cognitive relationship I'm trying to make with memory and the way we engage with the image or images. So let's go back in time a little bit. I'd like to talk about your self-portraits a bit, and we could do a whole show on them, and I, I hope someone does someday. Some, someday in the next 20 years, someday we'll do a whole show on your self-portraits. But I want to talk about them in terms of the role they play in your work-making process. Um, in 1998, so a while ago, you told Rachel Allen in an interview that your lesbian domesticity series began with the self-portrait cutting and that the self-portrait kind of instigated that series. When you make works in a series, which is often, how often do those series effectively start with a self-portrait like that? Rarely. Very, very rarely. I probably make, you know, I, I probably have only a handful of self-portraits that I've really made. And it's different different times. I, I made a self-portrait when I was doing a body of work on in Venice. I was trying to figure out how to photograph Venice, which is almost impossible. Yeah, Venice, Italy. Not 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 California. 
And uh, I went to New Zealand and both of those bodies of work have new self-portraits in it. And I think it was the only way that I could deal with being an outsider. So before my self-portraits were always about an, kind of me being an insider and using my body to a certain extent of, of, of creating a political message, especially ideas of representation around being part of queer culture and needing to kind of add to that conversation. And I would say the most recent self-portraits have more to do with, I'm here, I don't know what I'm doing here, but here I am. And kind of having to put myself within it to feel like I have some kind of familiar ground to photograph in areas in which I, you know, I am very much American-based person. And a lot of my conversations are about my own identity in terms of being an American. And it's very, I'm still trying to like figure out that piece of the puzzle of what it means for me to leave this country and try to begin to represent another place. And I don't think that I've figured it out very well yet. So I end up putting myself in the image because that grounds it for me. That becomes home. Are there, were there, have there been self-portraits in art history or in other backgrounds and disciplines that you think about most? I don't really think about self-portraits that much. My all-time favorite portrait, like, you know, that, okay, if you're going to a deserted island and you're allowed to bring one piece from art history, what would you bring? Picasso's Gertrude Stein for me. That is one of the most phenomenal portraits that is absolutely so complicated on multiple levels of what it means for Picasso to be dealing with Gertrude Stein's body, her position, all of these things. It's one, I think it's one of, I mean, there are many, many portraits that I would, I love and I would want to take with me. But to tell you the truth, I actually don't think about the practice of self-portraiture as much as I think about portraiture. So when I'm even doing a self-portrait, even though that there is a moment in which it's about a certain kind of obvious political self-reference that's important for me to do as a gesture, I'm still trying to figure out how to make it the best portrait. Alex Soth likes to talk about how being known for one or two pictures, having one or two pictures kind of reach this crossover point of becoming famous and inevitably being associated with him as an artist— is is both the greatest thing ever and the worst thing ever. And most people don't get that, of course, so it's, you know, hence the great part. But, but, you know, once you're the guy who made, you know, that picture, you're always the guy who made that picture. So it's been some years now. So in, in that context, how do you think of cutting pervert and nursing and, and kind of what's your relationship to them now, to those artworks now? It's a hard question because they're, when you're in the moment of making work, you never think about how the work is going to be historicized. And certainly making self-portrait, cutting on my back, and pervert were within a realm at that point where I was really pretty much unknown in the art world to a certain extent. I mean, I made self-portrait cutting in 1993. That's when Regan Projects started showing me. 94 self-portrait pervert came the first place it showed was the Whitney biannual that was really hard because all of a sudden I had to come out to my parents in a different way they knew I was a lesbian but they didn't know I was a lesbian who would have carved pervert on my chest (laughs) so they were there I have a complicated relationship with those because there's so much a part of a very specific moment in history for me 
that I'm so happy that they live in the larger discourse of a history of art. But I'm not necessarily at that place as a person anymore. And yet people still identify me as being in that place. And so with all the various bodies of work I've made over the years, it's really about moving people in and out in relationship to what I'm most curious about in any given moment in my life and trying to represent it as an artist. It always goes back to those images early in the 90s. And I'm happy because I can't tell you how many young people have come up to me and said, because of your work, you made my life easier. And thank you. And I'm so glad of that. And I'm, I'm glad that I've had a profound influence in that way in terms of being brave enough at a certain period of my time to be visible at a time where I thought, okay, this is it. I'm screwed. I'm never going to get a teaching job. I am forget about having an art career like all the – I just needed to make the work. But I immediately switched it up on everybody out of out of that fear of being pigeonholed. I mean, as soon as I finished the portraits, I made the freeways. And there's a reason for that vacillating between the various bodies of work because I will always say to everybody, and you've probably heard it in other interviews, I'm not a singular identity, nor do I want to be. I, You know, I, I think that for me, the present is always so important. And even though I think about the past and I certainly enjoy the great conversation that all of us have with artists in terms of a dialogue with history. And that's utterly important. And it's always, I mean, it's evident within my work, both from painting and the history of photography, how I play with those dialogues and conversations. But I do try to, I think that artists for the most part, we, we love, we love our legacies, but we're not dead yet. <laughs> And so we want, we live kind of in the next moment of where we're going in our head. And, uh, and, you know, self-portrait nursing for me was, God, so, so pivotal. I wanted a child ever since I could remember. And when I was able to have Oliver and decide that I was going to make this very public self-portrait uh, to have a conversation with both cutting and, and pervert, that... In a way, I, I, I will never say never, but you probably won't see another real studio self-portrait in that way from me. There was a sense of completion in that. And, you know, from that desire of the two stick figure girls holding hands on my back to, but, you know, oh, I'm a pervert, so I'm denied any kind of ideas of wanting family as a person to then, like, kind of this image of, of me nursing my son... I felt like that that finished a really important specific conversation in my mind. But so now you deal with things that aren't called self-portraits, like my arm in a fist, you know, a fist into the void, which is studio. But again, I don't call it a self-portrait. You did call it a self-portrait earlier. <laughs> well, I mean, so is no, that is that it's not titled as a self-portrait. I mean, yeah, I, I say that the other portraits of my friends are also like a self-portrait. But it's not titled that. So are you, are you saying that if you continue to make self-portraits, they're going to be standing on top of former trees in New Zealand? Or are you saying that you're kind of intrigued by this idea of bringing some abstraction, the hand in the void, the fist in the void, into the idea of what a self-portrait is? You know, it's, it's any given moment. That's why I, I think an artist should never say what they're not going to go back to. But I do feel that there's a certain completion for me that 
I'm not as curious about using my body in the same way that I used it in the past that I feel, you know, that whatever I needed to go through in terms of ideas of representing myself are not as forefront in in my mind right now. I, I feel that I, even though I wanted to put my arm in that picture, it was, it is my arm. But but there's other reasons for it. I certainly could have used my other arm that wasn't tattooed at the time. I mean, there is a recognizing factor within that arm. That arm has been presented, you know, in many works in terms of me revealing my body. But it's uh, it's for different reasons. My guest is Catherine Opie. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dear Nemesis, Nicole Eisenman, 1993-2013, on view at its La Jolla location from May 9th through September 6th. For 20 years, Nicole Eisenman has developed a creative vision that combines high and low culture with virtuosic skill. Fusing centuries-old art-making conventions and a multitude of art historic influences with contemporary subject matter, she has created depictions of community, identity, and sexuality. Her incisive socio-political critique operates through the quotidian and the absurd in ways that are both formally playful and visually breathtaking. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tatawando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 three-part pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Catherine Opie. You mentioned your son, Oliver, who makes his first, I think, first appearance in nursing. And so he's ended up in many pictures since, including several major pictures. There are not a ton of artists I can think of who are as happy for their kids to be in their work as you are. I mean, like, I don't know if Richard Mizrock has kids, but they're not, like, you know, walking across the Golden Gate Bridge as he shoots from his... I don't think he has kids. Maybe he doesn't have kids, but, you know, <laughs> maybe I picked a bad example, right? I mean, you know, Andrew Shea's kids aren't in Andrew Shea's paintings, right? Oh, gosh, maybe I have to think about that. So that's an interesting decision, and I guess, and so I have a couple questions about it. First, how does he feel about it? You know, it's it's a negotiation process, and I think the last photograph I did of Oliver isn't Oliver and Mrs. Nibbles, what, but it was because the New York Times Magazine asked a group of photographers to photograph their kids in their bedroom. And so he was like, well, I don't know. Do I really want to be in the New York Times Magazine? I said, I don't know. You know, it's really up to you. And then in the end, he, you know, kind of thought about it and he said, okay, you can, you can do it, but I'm going to, I'm going to direct it this time. And so he had just gotten new bedroom furniture and he wanted to be eating an ice cream on the bed with the dogs. You know, he wanted a very specific thing. And I was, I was totally fine with that, but 
I never want to overuse him. And I also love how he's proud of his images, you know, that he's in. And there's, you know, even as a teenage boy now who wouldn't put on a pink tutu, he really loves that that represents him at that moment in time. And I, I'm grateful for the fact that he's allowed me every once in a while to dip into that personal connection and moment of wanting him to be a part of my work because he's so much a part of my life. So it's, it's nice that he allows me to do it. But I really, really try not to overdo it. So your your life and and your kind of ideas about your place in the world have so informed your work since the beginning. When when you had Oliver, did you, or or when he was two or when he was four, did you think, should he do? I want him to be present in the work going forward. Was there an early conceptual decision to do that, to not to do that? Did you address it, or did you just take it as it happened as as life went on? I didn't know that I would have him over time in bodies of work. I knew that I wanted to make self-portrait nursing, and I knew he would have to be in that. <laughs> so, although Ben Stiller, when he introduced me, was like, and I and can I do a self-portrait nursing with you? And I was like, no, you can't, Ben. <laughs> but, you know, then when I was doing In and Around Home, it really, really was in and around home. And, you know, my, uh, uh, Julie, who is only in one other body of work, Girlfriends, because you can't really do a body of work called Girlfriends and not have your partner in it. Kind of, that would really mess things up. Plus, I really love looking at Julie because I'm in love with her. And so she had to be part of the work. And then my daughter, Sarah, shows up. Our daughter, Sarah, shows up in in and around home. But in and around home, it was really literally going back to my street photography days. So I always had a camera on me in my house. And Oliver's favorite thing to do was to wear his tutu and to do laundry. And all of a sudden, the light was just coming in right. And I had the camera because it was always loaded with film at that time to make that body of work. And, you know, I got that moment. But I didn't stage it. You know, there are other times that I've staged images, but for in and around home, it was really important that things were just happening, happening holistically in the house. Obviously, Julie and Sarah's portraits are more formal portraits in which they're really sitting for me or standing for me. But, you know, when I, when I started making the new body of work of portraits, I didn't know that Oliver was going to be in it. You know, I was looking at him, and I do this photograph every year, and friends get it. I do the happy fall card. So since Oliver has been born, instead of doing a Christmas card, I do the happy fall card. So every year, Oliver and I, now we figure it out together, but for every year, I would basically make a portrait of Oliver that said happy fall on it, Oliver the year XO, and send it to friends in the mail. I didn't want to be part of the Christmas card kind of tradition. I wanted to make something new called Happy Fall. You know, it's that to me is kind of the most interesting record of Oliver because his godmom has all of them and she pulled them out the other day and she laid them all out. And now we have Oliver from a baby to 13. And, you know, that is a that's a series that isn't out in the world that only friends have. And it is this record of Oliver. And it is something that I look forward to every fall. It's like, oh, we're going to make the happy fall card. 
you know, and we plan it now together. But I, I don't know. I mean, there are so many photographers that we can talk about who have used their children as primary subjects within their photographs. And I love that work. And I find that work really fascinating. And I find the kind of trust and the negotiation that goes in between it. And Sally Mann's beautiful writing uh, recently in the New York Times about this was fascinating to me. I never felt comfortable to use my absolute personal inner life on a continuous basis. It, it, it is, you know, it's a life that, that I hold very dear and my partner is a very, very private person. And so there's different magazines that have come up over time that, or other photographers who've wanted to photograph us as a queer family. And it's very hard for her to be involved in that. And she's not really interested in our family being showcased. And she's allowed me to do it with a couple bodies of work, but it's something that I feel very protective of is her own desire for privacy and what that means and with me being such a public person. So many of your series of portraits are of people who self-identify, who make, including in this show, people who make very careful, thorough decisions about how they present themselves and, and their bodies. And this is true of the surfers or of Idexa or Justin Bond going back to the early 90s, yourself. So there's one body of work that doesn't totally fit that for me, and that's the football players, the portraits of football players. Football culture tells them what to wear. A marginal interest in safety also tells them what to wear. Kind of uh, the, the heterodoxies idea of what masculinity should be tells them how to stand or how to wear what they're required to wear and so on and so forth. Is that part of why you found high school football players interesting or was there a whole other idea behind that? that series of portraits? Well, it first started off as landscape. Like I really, really wanted to try to create a different approach to ideas of Americana through landscape. And also that football is always seen from the zoom lens, from the point of catching the ball, these moments where it's not in between, even though every time we go, it's just like surfing. You go out and you look at the ocean you, you know, a good portion of it is sitting there waiting for the next set of waves. But we only think about the action in these things. And so it's a way for me to, like, deal with um, kind of American history within landscape. And then I started making the portraits right away when I began to make the landscapes. And it came down to where the first thing that happened was we were going to Louisiana for two weeks. And I have uh, 24 nieces and nephews in, in Louisiana. And all of the boys, for the most part, play football. And I was like, said to Julie, what am I going to do for two weeks in August in Louisiana while we're visiting your parents? Like, I know that I'll go around and make photographs because I always do whenever I go home. One day there'll be a whole body of work of Church Point, Louisiana, because I wander constantly when I'm there and make work. But I asked my nephew... Before going, I said, can I come to your practices? And I really was thinking about Collier Shore's wrestlers, and I was thinking about Reinecke Dijkstra, and I was thinking about a history of ideas of masculinity and the way that they're represented. And then I started thinking about how football players, predominantly except for in games, they're hitting each other. They're hitting their teammates hard in order to get to this, like, moment of, like, you know, performance on the field. And then that kind of, I, I watched that and I thought, ah, that's not very interesting in the end of it. Like I was, I didn't really want to talk about masculinity in that way. 
And then so it went back to landscape and trying to create portraits that allowed me to have an empathy with these young men in a way that in high school I was completely outside of their culture. So how can I look at them and how can I create empathy? And in the middle of that, then another, you know, it's like as you're making a body of work, all of these sets of questions begin to enter your mind. And then all of a sudden it became aware to me that I was looking at a group of young men who are utterly vulnerable. And that finding that empathy and that place of vulnerability became really fascinating to me because in the same way in the early 90s that the identity was worn on the body of my friends in terms of queer culture, I was looking at these young men that a good portion of them were going to be going off to war. And that kind of empathy and innocence and vulnerability that we don't place on the high school football player really kind of overtook me in a very emotional way that I was completely surprised about. I did not think about any of that going into it. But through work, three years I spent trying to make the body of work, and it just kept seeping into me in this, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a mother of a boy. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to make that work, and you know, but I do have a son, and it's really interesting to see the way that he tries to figure out masculinity. And, you know, I think that we have so many assumptions about people. And that has always been my problem in terms of making the early portraits, too, is, again, unpacking these kinds of assumptions that we bring to looking at people and work. And mine is utterly trying to create a democratic moment of what democracy really does and how it exists and how it exists within the bodies of even high school football players. Is is there one portrait from the football player series that you think best or most shows that mix of, of empathy, vulnerability, and figuring out masculinity? A couple. John is amazing from Alaska because John, for me, the background and the way that he holds himself in his body and he's a smaller freshman player. It's quite before that huge rush of, I mean, when you go from being a ninth grader to a senior, the body changes so radically. And John, to me, looks like a Bronzino painting. It just does this thing in the way that he, I'm, he's held with me. And that's the other thing that's amazing to me is these young men and the way that they're either kind of coming up to me to perform masculinity or they're just being with me. And I love the way that that vacillates within the body of work. And I think it really says a lot about, again, one's assumption. So the one for me is Josh, which is an Ohio picture. You took a lot of portraits of football players. Let's take Josh as an example, though. Do you remember taking that picture, whether you posed him, whether he posed himself with the football, how that picture happened? Because, I mean, to me, that's that's certainly the American portrait of the last decade I I look at most fondly and think about most. And so I'm kind of curious as to how it happened. Everybody's always posed by me. But what you don't figure out by the portraits is that this is after practice, not after a game. So it was like after surfing, the surfers came in. So there was, I wanted this exertion. And there would be a whole line of young men and it would be very quick. They'd come in, I would pose them, I would, you know, light them. I would have to, because they wanted to get home, you know, I would have to be very, very quick. And so maybe I took at the most five to six frames of each person 
And then it comes down to editing the body of work because you're photographing the anybody who wants to be photographed. I mean, they weren't mandated by their coach or anything. It was like up to players if they wanted it and everybody got a portrait. But I would often they would stand and I would look at their poses and I would shift it slightly or some of them I would have, you know, there's moments where the couple of the full length ones, they're putting their foot on their helmet or they have a ball in their hand because they wanted to have a ball in their hand. So it worked in two ways in which they stood and they represented themselves in the way that they thought that they should be photographed. And then I took control and I changed that. <laughs> so because they've had team photographs and they think what a football photograph should look like. And so a lot of them would be coming up to me with a big smile, holding the football or the helmet under the hand. And then I'd be like, Okay, now look off this way and, you know, just slowly kind of moving them and changing the light and being very aware of what was going on with the background, too. I think that often people don't think about the background in these portraits, but in both the surfers and the football portraits, it was really important for me for them to have this kind of amazing background moment of landscape, too, that, you know, in essence, because of depth of field, did go out of focus. So predated the kind of blurry landscapes downstairs. Finally, in 2009, you traveled from L.A. to Washington to take pictures around the inauguration of Barack Obama. And I don't say of the inauguration of Barack Obama because, you know, you're not standing there taking pictures of, of him with his hand on the Bible from, you know, like an AP photographer or something. And you just gave that series of work to LACMA for its, its 50th anniversary. That series is kind of an activation of street photography in a way, something that you hadn't done for 20 or 25 years at that point. Why, after so long away from that as a thing, did that seem like the time to, to reactivate it? I had started playing with doing street photography again, and it actually started before inauguration where I photographed the immigration marches in L.A., and one of the things that I started thinking about was after emptying out the cities and emptying out the landscapes and all the American cities' body of, of work, what does it mean for citizenship? What are we looking at, especially during the Bush era, of a kind of, of a, a moment in which I can display democracy in a different way versus the emptying out of space that is really about the, the constructed world to a certain extent? Uh, and specificity of identity, which was really different thoughts that I was having, especially during the Bush administration. And I wanted to think about citizenship and democracy and the idea of what it means to fill space. What does it mean to gather? So uh, Helen Molesworth did a show at the ICA, which had some of inauguration in it, but she put all of the political landscapes together. So it was Immigration March, Inauguration. It was uh, Tea Party rallies. I actually would go to Tea Party rallies and photograph them. The Michigan Women's Music Festival, the 100th anniversary of the Boy Scout Jamboree. So it was, again, trying to look at how kind of radical from a Prop 8 rally in L.A. fighting for marriage equality to a Tea Party rally but that we all like basically, you know, it's like the lesbian washer and dryer joke that I have in domestic. It's, it's like when I give a lecture and I show that, I say to the audience, oh, this is a lesbian washer and dryer. 
And then I get a chuckle or I get, excuse me, but what's a lesbian washer and dryer? And I'm like, it's about equality. My washer and dryer is the exact same washer and dryer as you. And so I was trying to like figure out what is, what is democracy? What is the democratic landscape? And inauguration was utterly important to do. It was, again, a conversation with Eggleston's. He, he made this incredible volume of book called Election Eve, which is literally not about D.C. and the inauguration of Carter, but it is about the landscape that Carter inhabited in Georgia. And so, but my landscape was the idea of this gathering, the incredible gathering and the way that Washington, D.C. had its moment in the African-American community that you had never witnessed before. And so with the football players and with these different political rallies, one of the things that I was trying to think about within photography and going back to those street photography kind of importance and movement for me that that literally was a huge part of my work in the 80s was what is bearing witness? What does it mean for us to bear witness? And again, to create that photography is utterly important in an idea of documentation. And now here we've moved away from that again, but that I think that I will always vacillate between those points as, as an artist. So one of the interesting things to me about that answer is you didn't say the words Barack Obama once in, in 2008 and, and obviously early 2009, when you conceived that body of work, was it important to you that the Barack Obama was becoming president with all that meant for hopes and dreams of the future or was that ancillary to this idea of, of congregation around democracy and public process? I wouldn't have made the body of work without Barack Obama. So it's interesting that I didn't mention his name. I, I still like Obama. I, and, I, you know, and I was invited to the White House recently and got to meet Michelle, which was unbelievable. And the whole time that they have been in the White House and the private quarters are the four seasons of Lake Michigan they live with. And I love the idea that they live with my work and what it means for them to look out into those lakes as they deal with the difficulties of democracy and especially American politics. No, I don't think I would have made the body of work if it was Carrie or somebody else. It was literally about the transformation of that space being reclaimed in American history that I was most interested about it in. Kathy Opie, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.